I want you to think about the fact that God, through Moses, went to the Israelites while they were in bondage, while they were in slavery. And he said to them, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of your enemies. I'm going to take you to a promised land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And he invited them to put their trust in him. And they did. And he proved himself faithful. And then suddenly they find themselves further away from the promised land than they ever were in Egypt. Do you understand that where our story picks up tonight at Mount Sinai, in that place, they were further from the promised land than they would have been in Egypt. So in Egypt, it would have been closer to the promised land than now where this story picks up tonight at Mount Sinai. So Instead of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised them, they find themselves in the midst of a wilderness or a desert, not in a land flowing with milk and honey at all, quite frankly, in a land where life is harder uh, than it was in Egypt. And he takes them to this place. He, he doesn't just mistakenly let them stumble into it. He leads them there. And I got to thinking about that this week, and I, I thought, how often does that happen to us? Where God, we give our life to him, we trust him to deliver us from, from the bondage of sin, we, we commit our life to him, we put our faith in him and in our promises, we, in his promises, and we trust in his word, and then suddenly we find our lives further away from the picture of what we thought God had promised to us. And things are going from bad to worse. And, and suddenly, instead of seeing his promises fulfilled, we feel like they are further away from us than ever. I want to ask you a question tonight. What happens when God makes a promise to us, which we receive and believe by faith, and then life appears to get worse instead of better? It's in that place that the invitation to trust remains. The challenge to trust, even when all hell breaks loose, even when we're in a desert in life, even when it looks like God is not providing, that he has abandoned us, that he's not taking care of us, the invitation to trust God remains. Can I tell you that he is a promise keeper, that all of his promises are yea and amen, whether we're seeing them be fulfilled in our life or not, that the fact remains that his promises are yea and amen. And that's what the enemy does so, uh, so perfectly. <laughs> He gets in our life when we're standing believing that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do. When we stand in faith, believing his promises, believing that he'll take care of us and that all hell breaks loose because the enemy wants us to begin to doubt that God is a promise keeper. He takes us further away from what it appears that God has promised us. Maybe he's promised us or we feel he's promised us uh, deliverance for our child who's addicted. Maybe he, he's delivered us the healing. Maybe he's promised us the healing of our marriage. Maybe you, you feel like you have some health issues that you've received a promise from God regarding. And then all of a sudden, it seems like you're further away from that promise than ever. I just want to encourage you in that place to not give up. That the invitation to trust still remains. That God is indeed a promise keeper and he will do what he's promised to do. Don't be unaware of the enemy's schemes. 
And that's where our story picks up tonight. That while the Israelites, like I said, when they were in bondage in Egypt, they were actually closer to Canaan, to the promised land, than they were way down here in Sinai. So now God had promised them something, and the promise seems even further away, like it will never happen. And that's where our story picks up in in Exodus chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can open them there. I want you to think about something. This week as I was studying this passage, I I realized, you know, the the movies that we've seen on the Ten Commandments and on Moses, we we picture Moses have going up one time to receive the Ten Commandments on the mount and then coming back down to the Israelites. But but I want you to keep in mind, I counted them this week, and, and Moses does not just go up to the mountain. Now remember, Remember, this is a mountain. He had to climb. It was not an easy trek. And he doesn't just go up that mountain and back down once. There's seven recorded times of him ascending the mountain and then coming back down. So keep that in mind as we go through this story. Uh, Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read the entire uh, book. In the, or the entire chapter. In the third month after the children of Israel. You guys had, were holding your breath there, weren't you? In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Make sure that you, you see that. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. See, God wants us to hear from him. He he, he really desires that we hear his voice. So that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow And let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain nor touch his base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. 
And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its mountain ascended, its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And, Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. It's interesting that the priests didn't consecrate themselves. The people did. And I, just, I need to just tell you, as a minister of the word, I'm, I'm aware. This morning I was awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was saying to the Lord, Father, I don't want to grow stagnant. I don't want to lose my passion for your word. I, I don't want the busyness of life to choke out my love for you. I, I don't want, I, I don't want to, to be stagnant and, and grow complacent. And Lord, I understand that's a work of your grace, and I need you to grace me with, with the ability to seek you with, seek you with all of my heart. I, I'm aware that even in a position as a minister of God's word, I can fail to consecrate myself. It's easier in this position than it is for, for people who, are, are, who don't have to be in the Word all the time. It's easy for me to just open up this Word to look for a message versus to seek God with all of my heart versus to live consecrated, devoted, set apart to Him. It's interesting that we see that in this passage and Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. I want to look at verses 1 and 2 uh, very briefly. It says, On the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and they camped there. That's so interesting because as you know so well uh, by now, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And now here they were three months later camped at the mountain of God. This is significant. You say, why? Flip back to chapter 3 of Exodus and look at verse 12. God had given Moses a promise. Moses, if you remember in that chapter, he, he ascended Mount Sinai and he saw a burning bush there. He had an encounter with God. And in that encounter with God, God said to him in verse 12, we see it, I will certainly be with you. God was calling him to deliver the Israelites from bondage. And he was making a promise to Moses. Remember, God is a promise keeper. And he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the fact that the Israelites were now camping at the base of Mount Sinai, it was a fulfillment of God's promise to Moses. It was confirming his power and his faithfulness to the Israelites. So if Moses and the Israelites had any doubt about God's call for Moses to lead his people to the promised land, that doubt would now be abolished as they stood facing uh, the mountain of God once again. And then verse 3, we see that Moses went up to God. I love that. 
I don't miss that fact that Moses went up. And, and I think so often we read this and we rush through these words. I, I teach a Friday morning Bible study and, and I teach people how to study deeper, not just the surface, no, just scratch the surface, how to park on words like this and really look at their meaning. And, and so a word like this is vital. That word up, it means to go up, to ascend. But here's the better, the better definition. It means to meet, to follow, to withdraw or retreat. I love it. You see, we have to be intentional about withdrawing and retreating into God's presence. Moses knew he had to get in God's presence. He was at the mountain of God. He was in that place where he had once encountered God and he wanted more of it. I don't want you to miss that God did not say, Moses, come up. It wasn't until Moses began to ascend, until he withdrew from the people and he got in the presence of God, he went towards the presence of God, he began to climb, that God met him in that place. God came down at that point. Oh, it's so interesting that it says that Moses went up to God uh, on a mountaintop. I love that, that the picture of God is a mountaintop because, you see, that would be the most appropriate place for God to be, a place that's majestic, a place that's exalted just like him. But as I said, I want you to note that, that God didn't call Moses to climb and summon him to climb that mountain. Moses started climbing and God met him in the climb. As he was ascending, God met him. And you see, we have got to make the decision like Moses to ascend into God's presence, to, to withdraw, to retreat, to, to, to climb up into God's presence, to be intentional about it. God didn't make Moses labor. He didn't make him climb that whole mountain to get into his presence. He met him in the climb. The verse says he called to him from the mountain. And that word call, that, that when, when it says that God called Moses from the mountain, that word call means to summon or to invite. Oh, I just love it. Do you know that God invites us into his presence? He summons us into his presence. And unlike the God that we see evidenced in, in Exodus chapter 19, a God that needed to be feared, a God that we needed to tiptoe around, I'm just telling you, God says when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and the veil was rent in two, that now we're invited to come boldly into his presence, confidently into his presence, without fear. He's summoning us. Verse 4 through 6, he says, this is vital. I just want you to make sure if you're missing everything else I say tonight, don't miss this. Verses 4 through 6 says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. He, he says, and I, Alex Motier is one of my favorite commentators, and, and he is a, a commentary on the book of Exodus, and it's interesting. He, he says that there's a sequence of these central elements in verses 4 through 6. And he says, a sequence that's extremely important for understanding the whole Bible. I want you to see what, what the sequence is there. He says in verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
It's a picture of the saving acts of the Lord that we see in verse 4. And then in verse 5a, we see our response of obedience. He says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And so in in verses 5b and 6, we see the blessing that obedience brings. Do you see that? Do you see that at first we see the saving works of God that that happen by grace? And we respond to those saving works by, by obedience. And that obedience to God's word brings blessing. Motir says, there is nothing that must ever be allowed to disrupt this order. Salvation is by grace, but obedience brings blessing, and we cannot get out of this order. You and I are saved by grace and not by works, through faith, so that no man can boast. But our response to being saved by grace is obedience, and that obedience brings blessing. It's important that you know as we get into this message and as we begin to study the law next week, I I need you to really get this deep in your spirit, that the grace always precedes the law of God. The Israelites were not saved by the law. Moses didn't get the Ten Commandments the first time he went up into the presence of God. And God says, I want you to deliver my people. Take this Ten Commandments to them and say, while they're in bondage in Egypt, you know what? Here are these laws. And if you obey them, God will deliver you. Just try hard. He he didn't do that. Uh, See, this is where so many people, this is where ignorance just really bothers me in the church today, that we have not studied to show ourselves approved, that people who say, oh, the Old Testament isn't applicable today, are you kidding me? All through the Old Testament, we see the picture of Christ, our Redeemer, our Deliverer. We see it. We see a picture of grace. Can I tell you, the Israelites were not saved by the keeping of the law. They were saved long before the law was given. Moses did not go to them in Egypt while they were in slavery and say, here's the law, try to keep it, good luck with that. Maybe if you're good enough, God will deliver you from your mean enemies. He didn't do that. God heard their cry, and out of his great love for them and a heart of compassion and mercy, he delivered them out of bondage, out of slavery, out of the cruel hands of Pharaoh, the taskmaster. They didn't do anything to deserve it. They didn't help him in any way, shape, or form. He did it all on his own out of great love for them. And let me tell you, dear ones, you have been saved by grace. If you are here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is nothing you could ever have done to earn it. You couldn't be good enough. You couldn't work hard enough. You couldn't pay enough money to the church. Can I tell you, you have been saved by grace. It is a gift of God. You couldn't have done anything to deserve it. You are helpless in your sin, helpless in your bondage. But God in his mercy and his grace delivered you. But... Once they were delivered and set free, now three months later, we see that God is preparing them for the law. And the law was not going to save them. The law was giving giving them a picture of, of what salvation really looked like, what being safe really look like. You see, these are my, this is my character. These laws are a picture of what I'm like. And you are called to manifest me to a lost and dying world. This isn't going to save you. You're saved by grace. But this is going to save you a lot of pain and heartache. 
If you just keep my law, if you just do what I tell you to do, it's God revealing his will for their life to, to them. It is not about a law that will save them. The law of God does nothing to save. It's simply instructions on how to live in a way that pleases him. It shows his will for our life. It points us to our need of him. Can I tell you, the law points me to my need of God, to the need of the Holy Spirit living within me to do it through me. You see, we are saved by grace and not by works. But that same grace that saved us, you've heard me say this a million times, now empowers us to walk out the will of God, to do his will, to do his law, his commands, if you will. The Bible says, this is how I know you love me. Somebody tell me, you keep my commands. Oh, Rhea, that's works. No, it's not. It's what's pleasing to God. Anybody besides me want to live in a way that's pleasing to God. His commands are not burdensome. He doesn't put this on you and say, here's a heavy burden for you to carry. Just obey this law. He says, you know what? Let me take some of that burden off of you, living the way you want to live, the pain and the heartache that that kind of life brings. Here's my law. It'll keep you from so much pain. It'll save. It'll deliver. It'll rescue you from heartache and pain. Israelites were not saved by the law. They were saved by grace. You and I are not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. People who say the Old Testament no longer applies to us today have to be really careful with that thinking. Yes, we are under a new covenant. Yes, Scripture says we're no longer under the law. But the Mosaic law shows us what God is like. And we are called to imitate him and follow his example, to reflect his behavior, uh, to manifest him. And scripture says he does not change. He doesn't change like the shifting shadows. And so this same God that gave this law, he hasn't changed. Scripture says in Hebrews 8.10, I want you to turn there because I want you to see it in black and white. Hebrews 8.10, now this is New Testament for those of you who would argue with me about the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews 8.10, it says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. This is him talking about the new covenant. And, and he says, after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws where? In their minds. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Uh, people who say to me, Rhea, I don't have to obey a list of laws on tablets of stone. I'm not under the law. No, you don't have to obey a law engraved on stone. You see, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, those laws, reflective of his character, are engraved on our hearts and our minds. You see, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to prove to us that, that because of the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, as we lived a spirit-led life, we can fulfill his will in this world. And we can, as a result, reflect and manifest him to a lost and dying world. We don't obey to be saved. We don't obey to be accepted. We are accepted, therefore we obey. The blessings are ours to be discovered through obedience. He says, you have seen what I've done. He's calling them to recall, to remember his power, to remember his faithfulness. He said, you've seen what I've done to the Egyptians. Here's what I love. He says, you saw how I bore you 
on eagle's wings. That word bore there means to lift up, to bear, to carry, to support, to sustain, to bear continuously. Oh, I love it. Kenneth Riken says, the eagle is a fierce bird of prey. It attacks its enemies the way God attacked Egypt, but it's also a bird of rescue. The wings of the eagles depict God's protective nurture and tender care. It's a picture of the tender, nurturing care of God that, that, that protects us and, and watches over us. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32. Many of you are familiar with this verse, but I, I don't just want to breeze through it. Uh, Deuteronomy, just a couple books back, Deuteronomy chapter 32, one of my very favorite scriptures. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. For the Lord's portion is his people. That's you and me. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, and encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, always in his focus. And this is what I want you to see. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on his wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride the heights of the earth that he may eat the produce of the field. He made him draw honey from a rock and oil from a flinty rock. And it just goes on and on. But I want you to see as an eagle stirs up his, its nest. Uh, it's such a picture of a mother eagle and carrying her young. You see, baby eaglets are helpless. I, I was reading and doing some research on eaglets. And some, some people say that eaglet, eaglets are so comfortable in the nest that they will stay in the nest for over a hundred days that the mother at that point knows that they're getting too comfortable in there and she knows that that eagle was created to soar she understands that that eagle will not fulfill its destiny as long as it's in the comfort of that nest and so she knows that, that, that eaglets were never meant to stay babies forever, that they were meant to mature. And dear ones, can I tell you, God is making this, this simile. He's making this picture about you and I. He's saying, I have bore you on wings like eagles. He's saying, like a mother eagle stirs up her nest, so I will do that to you. He's talking about he wants us to soar on wings like eagles. He wants us to run and not be weary. He, do you see the picture that he's painting here. And just like baby eaglets were not meant to stay in the nest, they were meant to mature, not remain babies forever. You and I, as Christians, were not meant to stay in the comfort of the nest. Oh, I like the comfort of the nest. I'm just going to tell you that. I like when God's just providing for me at every turn. I just love when I'm seeing his faithfulness at every turn, and then that he really doesn't expect a whole lot of me. I really like when he brings me everything I need, and he just, he just spoils me. I love it. Anybody besides me love that. I love the nest. I love when he doesn't expect me to soar. I love when he treats me like a baby because it's comfortable. Everything I read about an eagle's nest, or in, incidentally, the word there, uh, is, is, it can also be used for a vulture. Uh, commentators disagree, uh, you know, which one it is, but it doesn't matter because they both behave the same way. But, 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 uh, but I just want you to know that their nests are comfortable. They're filled with feathers. The mother puts all those comfortable feathers in there. It's just cozy. I really like a cozy life. 
But God says, you know what? As a mother eagle stirs up her nest, Rhea, I got to do that for you sometimes. You see, what, what happens is when that eagle gets comfortable and it's staying there way past its time of maturity, the mother knows she has to do something because if she doesn't, that eagle will never fulfill its destiny. Can I tell you, precious ones, every one of you in this room, you were knit together by God in your womb, in your mother's womb. Before you were ever conceived, I got two grandbabies coming. You see, they were a thought in their mom and dad's minds. They, they were a thought. You know, Tyler and Betsy and Brooke and Steve, they said, let's have a baby. And, and they began to have a thought that they wanted a baby. But I just want to tell you, long before they were ever a thought in Ty and Betsy and Steve and Brooke's mind, oh, God knew them. God knew them. That's what the scripture says. Before you were ever conceived, he knew you. He knew all about you. He had a relationship with you, if you will. And I believe that he put a destiny and a purpose in your life. You see, my grandbabies, I started praying before I ever found out they were conceived. And I said, Lord, pick out the babies you want for this family. Pick out the souls that you want to be birthed in their wombs. The souls that will be kingdom advancers. That, that will be God-fearing, God, oh, God God-loving children. Adults that'll be, be people who, who advance your kingdom forward, that'll make a difference in this world for you. Those are the ones I want you to know and put in their wombs. I believe that. And I believe that my grandchildren right now that are being carried in my, my daughter's wombs, <laughs> I believe there's a purpose already in those children's lives that I am going to pray into fulfillment. I am going to pray every day I pray. And I say, Lord, make them a kingdom advancer and a world changer. I'm asking you, Lord, not to waste one day of their life. I'm asking you, Lord, to make them make a difference for you in this world. Don't even bring them in this world if they're not going to make a difference for you. I'm already praying the fulfillment of that destiny in their life. And every one of you, when we get together and pray, we pray for the fulfillment of the destiny of God's purpose and, and plans for your life. We pray for that. We pray that you're not just sitting here on Monday night, that something is stirring in you and that you are understanding you are not here by accident, that every day ordained for you were written in his book before one of them ever came to be, that you have a purpose and a plan that God put in you before you were ever even conceived. And you see, what's so sad is that this room is sitting filled with people who are not fulfilling that destiny because the enemy has put a blockade in front of them that they're focused on instead of focusing on what God says they are. And he's hijacking your destiny because as, as, as Ian said tonight, he's hijacked your identity. You have forgotten who you are in him. Where did I get on all of that? Not at all in my notes, so let's go back to the nest. <laughs> so I like comfort. <laughs> and I'd really prefer a pretty peachy keen, feathered nest, comfortable life. But what the eagle knows is that her eaglets have a destiny to soar. That they were created to soar. 
And so what she has to do is she has to help push that destiny along. And so the Bible says she reaches in with her talons and she stirs up the nest. She pushes those fluffy feathers out and she brings the thorns and the sharp sticks to the surface. Now that nest isn't quite as comfortable. And they're starting to feel like, I don't want to get out. Everything I was reading about eagles, at this point, the mother, she's still there and she's still bringing food. She just lets time pass a little bit longer before she shows up with food. And, and she makes them think, and she's, she's like hovering over the nets, like the scripture says, because she's letting them see what they were created for. She's letting them see what's in them and what they can do. And you see, that's what God does to me. You see, I want him to just bring me food. I just want him to take take care of me and nurture me and protect me and keep me comfortable. And he says, oh, Rhea, you were created for so much more. Can I tell you, I've been through some pain, more pain than some of you can ever imagine. The thorns in the nest he brought to the surface, and I really don't like them. But without those thorns, I would never have known what was in me. I would never. He's, he's standing there rooting for me saying, Rhea, you have no idea what's inside of you. You want the comfort of this nest, but I know there's so much more you can do. And so I'm just going to encourage you. I'm just going to hover over you in the word. And I'm going to show you what's available to you, Rhea. And then at just the right moment, you know what the mother eagle does? pushes them out of the nest. Now, the eagle's nests are really high on a crag. <laughs> pushes them. Oh, Lord, he's had to push me sometimes. See, some of you are in a pushing time right now where, where that eagle just dive bombs. Their wings haven't even been tested yet. They don't know they can fly. And yet, they just zoom right down that crag. And they look like they're going to hit bottom. I've seen video of it. It's amazing. This little sweet bird is just nose diving down a cliff. And then right before it hits bottom, do you know what the mother eagle does? Zoom right underneath it. Catches it on its wings and takes it right back up to the crag. Then guess what she does? She lets it get its little breath. And she does it over and over and over, never letting it fall, never taking her eyes off of it. And at just the right moment, swooping under it with her protective wings, teaching it that it can soar. And after she does it time after time after time, eventually its little wings get the strength and then all of a sudden it begins to soar on wings like you. How many of you can quote Isaiah 40 to me? Those who wait upon the Lord will do what? Mount up on wings like eagles. Do you know that word mount? <laughs> Dave in my line. Dave was sitting with me when I found this out. Do you know that that word mount is the exact same word that's used when Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God? Retreat, withdrawal, ascend. <laughs> Those who wait expectantly in faith on the Lord to do what he's promised to do 
When they retreat and withdraw and mount up and ascend to that place where he is, when they get to that place of encounter with him, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They, 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 they won't faint in the midst of all of that. Do you see that scripture? He says, see, I bore you on wings like eagles. I bore you. Dave and I were... Um, we're parents to some turtle doves, like, I don't know, how many nests? Six, six nests of turtle doves on my deck. I, I, my windows are full of bird poop, and I'm like, Lord, can you send them someplace else? And then the Lord, one morning I went down, and above my front door, there's a nest. And I'm like, Lord, okay, enough, enough. And, and, and I went to study the word that morning, and he gave me the scripture that said, even the sparrow has a place at the, at the altar of God. <laughs> And he's like, let it go, Rhea. Let him in the window. And so now every year, I mean, I, we probably had, I can't even tell you how many nests of birds we had this year. So Dave chuckles every time because he knows it's like my button because my windows are just a mess. And, um, and Dave para washed the deck the other day. And today he went out and he said, there's bird poop all over our deck. And, and I mean, they're everywhere. And, but he, he chuckled the other day and he sent me a picture. And in our rain spout, there was a turtle dove, our gutter, there was a turtle dove. And, uh, and, and so we watched for a couple weeks this turtle dove just sit on this nest and she didn't even move. And you could kind of see her hovering back and forth, but she barely moved. In fact, we thought she was dead for a little while. And then all of a sudden, these two little heads pop up and she's still sitting on the nest. She's still, their heads are just popped up. And so she's right there with them. And a couple days later, we see her in the nest and the two of them on the roof right by the nest. And then a couple days later, she's nowhere in sight and the two birds are on the, the two babies are on the roof and I look over at our neighbor's house and there's the mom and dad are sitting up on the roof. They can see her. They can see those babies. A few days later, they're all on our back deck, the two babies and the mom and dad. Mom and dad are on this side, two babies are over here. Then two babies are on the deck, mom and dad are on the other neighbor's house. See, they were always in sight, but they were teaching those babies how to do what they were created to do. But always, he said, I kept you as the apple of my eye. I always have you. See, some of you right now are, are dive bombing. You're, he's teaching you to soar, and it feels like he's abandoned you. But can I tell you, he's keeping you as the apple of his eye. He's got his eye on you. He might be on the neighbor's roof, but he still has his eye on you. And he just knows. He knows what he put in you. And he knows you were created to soar. And as soon as you discover the power that's in you, you're going to begin to soar. He's be so proud of you. But you see, if he had never stirred your nest, some of you don't like that your nest is being stirred right now, but it was only the stirring of my nest that taught me how to soar. Lord, teach us how to soar. So he says, I, 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 I bore you on wings like eagles, and then look at the rest of that verse. He said, I brought you to myself. You see, he delivered them, he provided for them, he protected them, but it was all about bringing them to himself. He had orchestrated and led them to this mountain to meet with them. He didn't just deliver them to set them free. I want you to see that. He didn't bring them out of slavery just to set them free. He delivered them to bring them to himself. There was so much more. You see, salvation is not just about delivering us from hell and getting us to heaven. Heaven is marvelous. But you know what's more marvelous? 
understanding who he is and being drawn to himself, having that intimacy and that deep relationship with him. That's what he wants us to have. God reminds us that they had seen him do all of this. He was reminding them to recall that. He's saying, Israel, you've reached a place in your relationship with me where where I'm requiring a deeper commitment on your part before. God wanted to grant them a deeper revelation, a deeper understanding of who he was. He had carried them up until this point, but there was so much more he wanted to reveal to them about himself. So much more he wanted them to do in their lives. But in order to receive it, he's saying, I need a a new level of obedience. I need a deeper uh, commitment to to obedience and the covenant I've made with you. And he's saying, if you're willing to do that, a fresh revelation of God will be given to you. You see, a deeper relationship with God requires a deeper level of commitment from his people. Look at that scripture again. It says, God is saying, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That was none of their own doing. It was simply grace. But then he says, now, with this in mind, considering all I've done for you, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for the earth is mine. He said, if you really recognize you've been saved by grace, if you really recognize the mercy and the grace that's been shown to you out of gratitude, not out of an effort to work, not out of a works mentality, out of gratitude, you'll commit to obeying my commands. That word obey there is shama. Many of you have heard me teach on this before. It means to hear and obey. You see, what God is saying in the use of that word is you hear his voice. The Bible says, in hearing they do not hear, and seeing they do not see. What he's saying is you're hearing, but you're not obeying, so you haven't really heard. That word shama means to obey, that I hear his voice and I obey. And if I haven't obeyed, I haven't really heard him. It means to answer a knock at the door. If I'm sitting in my kitchen and I hear a knock on my door, I'm going to get up from my chair and go answer the door. I'm going to respond. And that's the word obey obey there. It means that we hear his voice and we respond to it in obedience. Riken said the covenant was God's unbreakable promise of love for his people. He had made a covenant with Abraham, promising to give him a land and a people who would bless the whole world. He confirmed his, his covenant with Isaac and Jacob. Then in order to make good on his promise, he brought his people out of Egypt. Exodus is a story of God remembering his covenant. And to this point, what the covenant mainly required of God's people was faith, faith in God's covenant promise. However, because it's a mutual relationship, he wanted them to respond in obedience to his will for their life. That was up to them. I love what Alex Motier says in closing. He says, the significant if in which verse 5 opens, if you hear my voice and obey, relates not to covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. See, you need to hear that again. Because status comes, not, or status comes by the acts of God. We are saved by grace. That's the act of God in our life. But enjoyment comes by the responsive commitment of obedience. So you need to hear that again. 
Status comes by the acts of God. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. We are children of God. That is our status. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is our status, and nothing can change that. We, uh, we are, are clean before God. We are, we, we are able to, to come boldly in his presence. That's our status, and nothing can change that. It was an act of God. But enjoyment comes by the response of commitment of obedience. He says, obedience is not our part in the two-sided bargain, but our grateful response to what the Lord has done. What bothered me in the scripture is he says, if you will keep my covenant. You see, what we haven't talked about is that covenant is one-sided here. It's a unilateral covenant. It is God coveting to us in a covenant of love. It is it's God committing to us. It, it depends on him. So why is he telling me that I need to keep his commandment? And Dave and I looked up that word keep, and it means to stay within the bounds of. Oh, I love that. You see, I prove that I am a covenant person when my lifestyle identifies with him. When I keep his will, when I stay in the bounds of his will, that, that proves I'm a covenant person. Do you see that? I keep in the bounds of that covenant. John McKay says they were not given the law to save themselves, but so they might continue to enjoy the salvation they had already received. We have to remember that our behavior reflects that we are his own. It's interesting that he says that you, if you obey me and you follow my commands, you will be my treasured possession. You know I love that scripture that word treasure possession, it means the king had a big, had, had a right to any, any treasure in the kingdom. But, but this word treasured possession, it means a secret stash. He had a treasure that, that was, was uh, all of his own, a treasure that was special to him, a, a treasure that, 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 that was really his private property, a, a, a treasure that, that, that he, he really valued the most. It was his secret stash. You've heard me tell the story about Dave's secret stash of candy that he had hidden even from me, and, and, and that was his treasured possession. It was... Kendall came into the house the other night, and he had these things in England. They eat these things called refreshers, and they're hard to find, and we have to send them uh, over from England, and so it takes a long time to get, and I had sent for a package of them several months ago, and he just recently received them, and he hid them. All of my kids love them. I had 12 packs of refreshers, and they're not cheap, and so he was in bed the other night, and he was eating a pack of these refreshers, and Kendall walked in, and she said, oh, not fair. Where, where's mine? And he said, I already gave you a pack. You should have been more careful with them. And he was eating them like they were to secret stash. He was not about, this is his daughter, and he was not about to tell her where that secret stash was because he, one pack. That's what we are to God. He protects us with everything he has. We're his treasured possession. He, he, he protects us with every ounce of his being. He doesn't, he doesn't want to share. He, he, we belong to him. Do, do you see that? But it's interesting that that word, you'll be my treasured possession, it, it means, he says, if you obey, you'll, you'll be my people and you'll be my treasured possession. And when I looked up the word, it means the, the possession, uh, you'll be possessed by the possessor. You'll be possessed 
by the possessor. I was meditating on that all week, and I got to thinking about how Satan has a counterfeit for everything God has a real of. And how demonic possession, when a, when a, when a person is demonically possessed, have you ever seen somebody who was demonically possessed? Leslie and I have encountered that often with some people, and, and you can tell, clearly tell, without a doubt, that they are possessed, that they're overtaken by a demonic force. That wasn't Satan's idea. It's a counterfeit for everything God has a real of. You see, you and I, through obedience, we, we prove that we are possessed by the possessor by God, that our whole life, you see, I'm going to manifest that he has possessed me because I'm going to do his will. I am going to be committed to do his will because you see, he delivered me when I couldn't deliver myself. He delivered me out of the muck and the mire and he put my feet back on solid ground. He delivered me from the bondage of sin and he set me free. And, and, and as a result, I want him to possess me because I've tasted of his power. And this, my friend, is not about works. This is about being being possessed by the possessor. And everywhere I go, I get to manifest, just like a demonic manifestation shows up. What was it, creepy or what? We saw, where were we? Houston. Oh my goodness, it was about the creepiest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And, and they, what, people were afraid, and I was like, excuse me, you're afraid of this? This is a counterfeit for what God has a real of. And we have authority over this. And we saw a life dramatically transformed. And you see, that's what God wants. He wants, he, he saved you, he delivered you. Sure, you can live the rest of your life not obeying his commands. Rock on with your bad self. Sure, you get to go to heaven because you're saved by grace and not by works. That's what you want, go. Do it. You see, I want to be possessed by my possessor. And I do that by submitting to his will and doing what he tells me to do. And in doing that, I give proof that I'm possessed by my possessor. People say, what in the world does she have? I sat with a little lady in church on Sunday. And how old do you think she is? Maybe in her 80s. And she said to me, Rhea, I heard you preach. And, and she said, what is it about you? She said, I know the same things you know, but there is something about you. I'm possessed by my possessor. I'm possessed by my possessor. And some people find that weird. Just know I'm his treasured possession. McKay says, treasured possession renders a word that refers to the private property that's under the exclusive control of its owner. Anybody besides me understand that they are private property of an owner who wants exclusive control of their life. Why would you not want that if he's proven to you? See, the Israelites, they would be able to say, if you talk to them today, they would be able to say, hey, let me tell you about this God. We were in bondage for 400 years. We were mistreated. We were abused. We, we were beaten. We were, we had every bit of pain you've ever seen, we were going through it. And we cried out to God. He heard us. And he miraculously delivered us from that bondage. And let me tell you about this, this Red Sea thing that the enemy was pursuing 
leaving us. And God lifted up the, whoa, took a whole army out, a powerful army. And we came across on dry ground. Let me just tell you about this water and a rock thing. And, and let me tell you about the blood. We put this blood, the death angel was passing over. Everybody was dying. But God told us if we just applied the blood that it would pass over, our kids were fine. You won't even believe this, God. And he has this promised land for us. Oh, let me tell you. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. The whole book of Exodus is a picture of the power of God in our life. Can I tell you about my Egypt? Can I tell you about bondage? I knew bondage like nobody knew bondage. When Paul says, I'm the chief sinner, I, I'm going to say, I got one up on you, Paul. I think I could make you look like an angel. I understand what it means to be a chief sinner. I understand what it means to be in bondage to sin. And God, not even me being helpless in it. And God saying, I'm just going to deliver her. I'm going to lead her out of this. And trust me, it wasn't a choice of mine. I didn't do anything to earn it. I earned hell. That's what I earned. He gave me heaven. And he gave me deliverance. And if a God can do that in my life, why would I not want to do his will? Why would I not trust him that what he's commanding me to do is right for my life and it protects me and keeps me safe? Why would I not want to obey that? That's not works, dear one. That's just smart. That's just smart. One last thing he says, I want you to be a holy nation a priest, a royal priesthood. That word holy nation, it literally means a different kind of human society. You see, God wants us to live differently than the world. And we see that on the Sermon of the Mount where he was saying, this is what my people look like. They're different from all the other world. What would happen if we really behave that way? He said, I want you to be priests. Priests have access to God. I love Tim Keller says, priests bring people outside into a connection with a God they have access to on the inside. I want to say it again. Priests bring people outside into a connection with a God they have access to on the inside. He said, that's what I want for you. And so he says to Moses, prepare the people because they're going to they're encounter me. And they had to be properly prepared. And, and God said they, they, they need to be four ways they need to prepare. Chuck Swindoll really draws this out in his book, and I love it. He said that there are four ways we have to prepare to go into God's presence. He said we have to, number one, be willing to obey. That's that word shama. I need, we need to hear and obey. He says, number two, we have to be sensitive to listen. Uh, God, Moses went back and he said they're willing to obey. And God says, okay, now I can come talk to them. Because they're willing to obey, that means they're going to hear what I have to say. Therefore, I'll speak to them. And then he says, concentrate, consecrate your heart. That word consecrate, you know it means to be set apart. It means to be holy. But here's what I want you to know. It means to be devoted. You see, we have to decide that we're going to be devoted to him. That, that we're going to consecrate ourselves. He says, wash their clothing. Make sure they wash their clothing. You see, clothing, clothing are the garments we wear. The way we act is our intentions. It's our character. It's the clothing that we, uh, what I, how I dress tells you who I am. And for example, if you, if you pull a, a, a bride over on the highway when she's on her way to, to the wedding, you, you see her in her wedding dress. You know what her intentions are. She's going to get married. 
My son, Tyler, a police officer in Minnesota, if he pulls you over and you encounter Tyler, you're going to take one look at him in his uniform and know his intention for your life. Are you with me? Our clothing identify our intentions. Are you with me? And so he says, I need them to wash their clothing. It's a symbol of, of, of the attitudes we wear, our, our nature, our behavior, our intentions. And the Lord is instructing them to make sure they had fresh clothing on when they, they approach him. It's a picture of us confessing our sin, washing, coming clean before him, not rushing into his presence. Say, Rhea, you don't need to confess your sin anymore. Really? Really? Rhea. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Your sins are forgiven, uh, past, present, and future. Really? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. That's a fact. But John says, if we, he's talking about himself as a believer, confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can rush into his presence if you want. But I understand. See, this is what, what, what he's setting up for the Israelites here. He wants Moses to help them understand the holiness of God and how we don't rush into his presence and we, we don't have any reverence. You see, that's what we're full of now in the church is a lack of fear for God. And I don't mean I'm afraid of him. I mean a reverence for his holiness, for who he is, the awesomeness of God. We don't revere that anymore. I, I love, I, I just have to read this to you. I promise this is it. God is warning do not be frivolous in my presence. Chuck says, God is holy. He's exalted. He's the only wise God. He's the creator, the maker, the sovereign Lord. He is the master. He tells me what to do, and I have no safe option but to do it. There is no alternative, no multiple choice. We have but one directive, and that is to do his will. He says, Chuck Swindoll says this, today God is our pal, He's our understanding buddy. He's our ever-available bellboy. No, he's not, Chuck Swindoll says. The Lord is our God. He does not bow to our hurried pace, but in silence, he waits for us to meet his demands. And once we slow down enough to meet him, he is pleased to add incredible spiritual death to our shallow life. Oh, I love it. You say, Ria. I'm just telling you, you are saved by grace. You get to go to heaven, not because of anything you've done. But you see, we bring heaven here to earth when we obey the will of the Father, when we manifest his likeness, and we do that through obedience. And we start to look like him and act like him, and people start seeing him at work in our life. This is not a condemning message. This is an empowering message. You see, because this is still not by works. It's what I prayed at 3 o'clock this morning. I said, Lord, I, I want, I don't want to be complacent. I want to hunger for your word. I want to thirst after righteousness, but I'm aware that even that is a work of grace, Lord. I need you to grace me with the desire. I need you to grace me with the passion to do that. I need you to grace me, Lord. See, it's intentional. Saved by grace. Nothing you can do will ever change that. But I'm just learning I can spare myself a whole lot of pain and heartache by responding in obedience to his word. Dave and I work with marriages that are in trouble. 
marriages that have been um, just absolutely destroyed because of sexual bondage, affairs, um, you name it. And I, I teach a hard word to the wives because one of the things I keep returning them to is you do what's right before God. No matter how much he's hurt you, you obey God and God will bless you and he'll restore that marriage and he'll bring healing into your heart. And it never fails. They're like, are you crazy? Do you know what he's done to me? And I say to them, I can't explain it to you except that God's ways work. And when we consecrate ourselves and we dedicate ourselves to obeying his word and doing what he says, he takes care of everything else. We become possessed by our possessor and nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch us. And I'm just telling you, the thing that I know with all of my heart and soul, that this isn't about works. It's about life. That doing things God's way, it brings life. There is no other way to soar except obeying his will. And when we do that, we become possessed by our possessor, empowered by him. It's amazing the life we experience. I want to pray for you before I leave. I want you to just note, just I want to flesh this out for you, and I want you to see that God was calling Israel to himself. He, he wanted to speak to them and that they had to prepare their hearts and prepare their garments in order to enter in his presence. They had to be intentional about camping at that mountain and meeting with him. And that had to be a place where they could meet with him. And I want to encourage you this week to have a place where you can meet with him. Mine's by the fireplace. Dave has a little bridge down by our house that he goes under and just sits and is with the Lord. He has a place where he meets with God. Do you have a place where you meet with God? Where, where you know you're going to encounter him and you're going to wait there till you do. And then as you, as you go before him, prepare yourself to hear. Lord, I, I want to I hear your voice and I give you my word that if I hear, I'm going to really try to obey. I'm going to try to follow what you tell me to do. So let me hear. I'm not going to leave till I hear. Can I tell you the Bible is a supernatural book? And the mistake that we make so often is we come to him in the natural man. The Bible says that the, the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned and the natural man can't understand them. People say, Rhea, I don't understand the Bible. It's because you're approaching him with your natural man. I never open the Bible without saying, Lord, this is a supernatural book and I need supernatural understanding to get it. And so find your place. Prepare your heart, prepare your spirit, man, to receive. Cleanse yourself. Say, Lord, I, I just want you to, to just cleanse me afresh and anew. I want you to wash away anything I picked up today as I, as I went through life. And thank you for that grace. I just want you to, I want to confess. I want to come into agreement with you and call it what it is. Lord, I want to be a priest. I want to be somebody who encounters you in the private place and then goes out to the people and tells them about who I just encountered. And I want to be a holy nation. I want you to make me somebody who's different than everybody else, Lord God. I want to look different. I want to manifest you to this world. And none of this scares me, Lord, because I understand you bear me on wings like an eagle. That your whole purpose in my life is for me to soar. And I'm under your watchful eye. 
that you keep me as the apple of your eye. And there is nothing I could encounter, no cliff too high, Lord God, that you will not catch me when I fall. That your destiny for me is to know you better and to begin to soar on wings like eagles. And so, Father, I pray that for every man and woman in this room tonight.